success in the global battle against malaria is in sight. That's according to experts meeting in London at a conference to celebrate the 2010 World Malaria Day. But there are problems, according to one of the speakers, the World Health Organization's David Bell. I asked him what's happening in the overall picture of malaria around the world. It varies a lot. So in Asia, the vast majority of people are diagnosed before they're treated. Uh, in Africa, probably most recorded malaria cases are not diagnosed accurately before they're treated. So most people are diagnosed on the basis of fever. We know that from a lot of evidence where people are testing that the vast majority of these people probably haven't got malaria but have some other illness. So uh, when we're treating people for malaria on this basis, we're wasting valuable drugs. Potentially, we could be increasing the chance of drug resistance. We're also uh, mistreating them. We're not addressing the real causes of their fever, which may also be very severe illness, such as typhoid, typhus, leptospirosis, meningitis, etc. Many patients aren't actually attending formal health care, um, which is creating a significant part of the problem in terms of treatment. How can we change that situation? It's very difficult, especially if you're talking about diagnosis. So in the private sector, people make money by selling drugs. If you're introducing a diagnostic, they're potentially not selling so many drugs. So someone will have to pay for a diagnosis from the patient point of view, and then they may not get any treatment because they haven't got malaria and there's no other treatment. Um, and the drug seller may not be making so much money because he's not selling antimalarial drugs, which may be his main source of income. So in the private sector, at that level, it's going to be extremely difficult to introduce it. There are models, for instance, in Cambodia. Uh, they've looked at giving incentives, um, training dr private drug sellers in diagnosis and treatment, and then letting the community know that these are the people that go. So although they're not, maybe not selling so many drugs, they may have more customers, so they may compensate. So there's different models that may allow this. There's also obviously a need within the public sector to strengthen public sector services. And uh, if you look at Western Europe, you know, etc., public sector medicine is what gives good health care in general. Uh, there's no logical reason why that should not be the case in other countries. So perhaps we actually need to fund the public sector much better and strengthen public sector in remote areas rather than just relying on private vendors. Having said that, that will take a long time and we also need to address private drug vendors and try to somehow regulate or train or find ways that they can actually be more effective in managing fever and not just dispensing antimalarial drugs. Accurate diagnosis and rapid diagnostic testing is um, becoming a bigger part of the picture. Um, what's happening there? There's a lot of rapid tests on the market. There's now good data on a large number of rapid tests on their performance. Um, it's possible now to, there's a system run by Fun and WHO to check the quality of rapid tests after they're bought and before they're used in the field. So we can now deliver very good rapid tests. It's been shown that if you train health workers well, then they can do them safely at a village level, they can follow the results well. There's also a lot of studies which show very poor performance, which reflects the fact that you can't just send these out to a village and expect things to work. You've got to have a whole system to support this in training, in supervision, in logistics and so on. So I think we need to see this as part of a push to get good health care in general to a village level.
and rapid diagnostic testing, what kind of impact do you see that having further down the line in terms of us combating and making a real impact in malaria? Uh, okay, it, it's not going to... Um, rapid tests obviously don't treat malaria. They tell you whether it's malaria or not. Um, it's going to significantly reduce the amount of drugs we need for malaria because we're going to show that most of these cases are not malaria. Um, it's going to raise a lot of questions, therefore, in what we do about all these other causes of fever because we can't do nothing. So it's going to change the whole way we look at malaria and fever and we're going to have to change from malaria management to management of febrile disease in communities. And so programs are going to have to be probably less vertical and much more integrated with childhood, early, you know, early childhood illness management, adult illness management. Um, it's also, you know, the fact that we can now differentiate from malaria from non-malaria. We're seeing a big change in places like southern Zambia, southern Africa, where it's a bit more borderline transmission. And where we thought everyone used to have malaria, we're now seeing malaria as a relatively minor disease as far as public health issues go. And there's going to be a, a shift in emphasis inevitably from malaria to these other diseases. David Bell, medical officer of the WHO Global Malaria Programme, who took part in the conference held for World Malaria Day at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Treatment resistance was a key topic of discussion, and Shunmei Yung told me about the difficulty this poses. The main problem is that we've had a fantastic drug cure for falciparum malaria, so the killer type of malaria, called artemisinin combination therapy. And the problem is that we're finding in western Cambodia that malaria parasites there are no longer as sensitive as they were, so they're not working as well. So if this gets worse, and if it spreads to Africa, it could have very severe implications for um, global malaria control. What that means is kids in Africa being treated with a drug that may not work. So what's being done there at the moment? Because earlier today we've heard about different combination approaches. Well, the, the combination is actually the key. Um, so artemisinins, which is the, the drug that we're worried about, um, should always be given in a combination. And if they are, they are still effective, meaning that actually people eventually do cure. So I think that one of the priorities is to make sure that they always are given in a combination, i.e. that the two drugs are in one tablet. And that's not always the case. And the, the monotherapy, so the drug on its own, is still available. So that's one of the priorities. There's also other priorities in terms of trying to find how, how far this problem has spread um, and trying to organise and coordinate a sensible response to the problem. And part of that problem is treatment isn't reaching the, the right people when they need it. What are the main challenges here? That's right. So one of the main problems is patients aren't getting the right drug. The right drug being a good quality, fixed dosing, a co-formulated drug. Patients are either not getting treatment at all if they've got malaria, they're getting the wrong drug, they're getting the monotherapy, they're not taking the right dose, they're getting fake drugs. And patients who are getting the right drugs, you know, the good quality ACTs, sometimes don't have malaria. So there's a real issue of access, so providing access to those who need it, and targeting, so making sure that people who need it get the drug. So a lot of different factors to be considering here in moving forward. What do you think should be happening now? 
there's research priorities in terms of defining how far it's spread, trying to look at the operational and clinical you know, research questions like how do we overcome it, um, how do we try and contain it, lots of questions that we need to address. In terms of an operational and policy response, I think there, you know, there, there needs to be a global coordinated um, response. So from you know, WHO, uh, with appropriate funding and, and the mandate to do that. Shin Mei Young of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And the London Conference heard about a new initiative in Britain, fighting the battle against malaria far away from the main countries it affects. Sarah Klein told me what her organisation, Malaria No More UK, has succeeded in doing. Our objectives are threefold. One is to advocate to policymakers, particularly in the UK, but also the Europe, G8, etc., to fund work on malaria. The UK is the second largest funder of malaria, so it's important to do work here. Uh, the second is to raise awareness, public awareness, to help generate um, funding, but also a political mandate for our politicians to continue to fund malaria. And the third is to inspire high-level stakeholders such as the private sector, faith groups, um, to get involved in their work already in Africa um, in order to ensure that we do as much as we can to help tackle malaria from every angle. So quite a few different approaches there. How successful has your campaign been at spreading knowledge in the UK about what's happening in the developing world? Well, we've been running for about a year. We've definitely been helped in our success by Sport Relief and Comic Relief focusing on the issue of malaria and their programming. Uh, for ourselves, we've managed to generate considerable media coverage and therefore opportunities for people to hear the message and understand the message about malaria. Uh, so what we try and do is use as broad a range of media as we possibly can to get the message out and as many different kinds of stakeholders as we can so that anyone from the Archbishop of Canterbury to David Beckham, as we heard earlier. What about political commitments then? Have you made any impact there? Um, over the last year, we've managed to double the number of members of Parliament um, prepared to sign what's called an early day motion, so a petition of support for tackling work on malaria. We've also managed to secure future-looking um, commitments in the manifestos of the Labour Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats towards doing more on malaria and funding more work on malaria. So in terms of political success, yes, we have had an impact on policymakers. We've also done work with our partners overseas to make sure that, for example, international coalition of NGOs who are lobbying the G8 and the G20 include up-to-date messaging about malaria and advocate on malaria as one of their, their issues that they bring to policymakers across the world. So speaking of overseas then, how has your work translated to the real world situation, people with malaria? What we've been focusing on in countries where malaria is endemic is funding uh, particularly behaviour change communication so making sure that people for example who are given a bed net know how to use it and use it properly that's extremely important. We've also been working with partners in malaria endemic countries who have been raising the profile of the issue of malaria and educating people about how to protect themselves. Sarah Klein, Executive Director of the group Malaria No More UK, ending our report from the conference held as part of World Malaria Day 2010. For audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, I'm Sarah Maxwell.